Good morning and welcome again. My name is Nathan. It's good to be uh, with you uh, together in the space. It's been, it's been fun each uh, week, right, looking out and, and seeing progress um, and a little messy, a little bit challenging, right, with losing a little bit of parking today and, and all of that. And just thank you for being patient with us. Um, and let me, let me warn you as well, it's going to get harder before it gets easier. Um, but we're excited, aren't we? In fact, I, I heard that a little rumor like we're going to four services in the fall. Did you hear this? Like, whose idea was that? <sighs> no, no, we are uh, in September. And I, I just want to say, I am, I am really excited about that. We, not naively, uh, maybe that sounds contrived, we know that it's going to be really challenging uh, for staff, volunteers, and all of us as a congregation. Um, but I am I'm really, truly excited about it. I'm going to give you four quick reasons why, okay? Really fast. Uh, I'm excited because it's necessary, temporary, motivating, and good, okay? Got it? <laughs> it's necessary. Like, we don't have any choice. Um, that, I mean, the reality is, like, on peak Sundays, uh, we've had to turn kids away, um, which is just, like, gross, right? That's icky. Like, we don't want to do that. Uh, we want to be a place to welcome anyone and everyone, and so we, we have to do that um, to be able to. We think we'll be fine for the summer because, you know, holidays and traveling and all that, but by the fall, uh, when everybody gets back, uh, we're going to need, it's, it's just necessary. I mean, just to give you a little bit of a snapshot, last year at this time, we were averaging right around 600 people every Sunday here at Olathe. Um, this year at this time, one year later, we're averaging right around 800. Um, that's a lot of people, and we got to put them somewhere, and so it's just, it's just necessary. Second, it's temporary. Woo! Right? Praise God for that. Um, it is not a long-term solution. Uh, thanks to your uh, generosity, um, the solution, right? It's right out there. And we see it coming. It's going to happen soon. Um, and so September, roughly to maybe March, it's like seven months. You can do anything for seven months, right? Right? So uh, it's temporary. Third, it's motivating. This is just an all-hands-on-deck moment for us as a church. Like, if you've been waiting for the perfect time, like, to volunteer or to get involved or to serve, uh, like, this is it. Um, we cannot do something this, this massive uh, without your help. And so we're calling you, asking you, saying, please, jump in, find a place to serve, and start that now so we know where we're at uh, when we get to this huge change uh, in September. Um, it's, it's motivating. Last, most importantly, it's just a, it's good. Like, this is a really good problem to have, isn't it? Because it's not just—it's not just about numbers or seats, right? It's uh, every number represents a, a face, a name, a story, and a desperate need for Jesus. And people are are meeting him here, and you and I—we get—we get to be a part of that, right? I mean, every every week we're meeting new people who are coming in. You know, I've met several families recently who just moved from out of state who are just. They just need a home, right? They need a place to, to settle in. Um, others recently that I've met who haven't, who've lived around here for a long time but haven't been to church in years um, who've recently decided to come back and have been, been doing that here and they, they love it. Like that's, that's why we're here, right? And, and the, reality, the reality is uh, we as God's people, we do hard things on purpose uh, because we want to see the good news of Jesus spread, Right? Uh, we choose sometimes the painful approach, not what's easiest uh, for us, so that we can continue to give ourselves away for our neighborhood. Um, that's why we're here, right? You in? Right? We're in this together. Oh, God help us. Um, stand with me. I'm going to read God's word, and then we'll jump into our, our new series for this morning. Our scripture this morning is 1 Kings 16. Um, verses 29 to 33, and if you have no idea what's going on after I read this, um, that's okay, right? We're jumping in right in this, this strange place in the middle of the Old Testament. Hopefully, we'll do a little bit better, uh, and we'll get there. Verse 29, though. Let me, let me read it. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. 
And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebai, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Well, what do you do when your world gets ugly? When you, when you feel it like caving in or, or collapsing in upon you, you feel outnumbered or alone or afraid, what are, what are God's people supposed to do in a world as broken as ours? I mean, there's lots of options, right? We could just go with the flow and just kind of forget about it, do whatever, you know? Uh, we could fight for power, like, like some trying to, to, you know, fight to the death for the last sort of vestige of, of power in, in our society or culture. We could, we could just run for the hills, right? To hell with the world, as long as we're okay. And what, what are we to do in a world so broken? Because it's, it's one thing to be exiled to Babylon. We talked about that last fall when we, when we studied Daniel. It's one thing to be, to be captured and forced into a place you don't belong. But it's quite another when, like a frog in the kettle... The change is happening around us and, let's be honest, within us. And it is so easy for God's people to be led astray. This morning we start a new series in this this place in the Old Testament, the Book of Kings. As a a church, we we often take large chunks of scripture, um, even books, and we just sort of work our way through them. And so we're going to spend the rest of this summer... Uh, to tell the, the story of Ahab and Elijah. And Ahab, right, we just came out of this series on vices and virtues. Ahab, like, he is the living picture, breathing example of vice. And Elijah, a virtue. And, and in these stories throughout the series, we're going we're gonna to see the ugliness that, that sometimes captures even God's people. We're also going to see what it looks like to be faithful to our God in the midst of that. But mostly, we're going to see that no matter what happens, God is still with us. He will not give up on his people. All right, so we've got our work cut out from a, for us. I'm really even just figuring out the context, right, of this ancient world and this, this old, old story. I'm going to do my best to kind of set the stage, really just kind of lay the groundwork for the week's ahead. Um, you can follow along if you want to in 1 Kings 16 and 17. We'll be in both those chapters, and I'll try to draw out three lessons for us along the way. Let me, let me read again, beginning with verse, verse 29. The narrator tells us, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And already we're lost, right? It's like, who are these people, where are they, and why should I possibly care? Um, that's understandable. Like, if you're feeling completely out of place here, let me try to set the stage here. I mean, the Bible is a huge book, and for us to just like jump in right in the middle is super confusing. So you, you're not alone if you're feeling that way. Uh, the Bible is a big book, but it tells one story. 
Um, let me try like in a minute to tell you what that, that whole story cover to cover is, right? It's the story of a God who rescues his people. That's every page. That's what this book is about. And so it begins in a garden and God creates a perfect world. He creates us humans to know him and to love him, right? To live in perfect relationship with him. But we rebel against him, right? And everything falls apart. Sin and death into the world and everything sort of, sort of breaks. That's just the first, you know, three pages of this book. Um, but God doesn't give up. The next 800 pages, at least in, in my copy, um, are the Old Testament. And the Old Testament centers upon a family that God says he's, he's going to do something new with this people out of broken humanity. Uh, and he starts with this guy named, named Abraham, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people. And they exist. They are supposed to, to be there as God's new sort of test plot for, for, for humans, right, of what it looks like to, to be in relationship with this God, and they're to do it in such a way that every nation around them, every human everywhere sees them and says, yes, that is the God that I want to follow as well. You know, but we humans, we blow it. And so that gets us to the, the New Testament, that's the last 250 pages of this book, which centers upon Jesus, which is God's solution to this problem, that, that God himself comes to rescue us, to die for our failures, because we, we keep messing up, we can't do it. He sends us his spirit to, to live within us, to empower us to actually live this life, and he gives us this, this new community called the church. That's, that's us, you, you and I, in the Bible then. It ends with Jesus promising to come back and say, I will make this world right. Like it's, it'll, the garden will be made over, and we will know him and love him, and we will live in, in relationship with him. That's, that's the Bible, okay? Um, but we're like smack dab in the ugliest part of the Old Testament of this, this family that's supposed to be different, right? Smack dab and it's, it's ugly. And so we, we are, when we meet Ahab and Elijah, we're 875 years yet till Jesus. It's a long time to wait. Um, and we're about a thousand years, maybe a little more after Abraham. So this is after Moses, after Joshua, after David, all of that. And finally at this place, this family has been united into a kingdom, but already the kingdom breaks. And when we get to the, the book of Kings, first and second Kings, take a look and, and this will help explain a little bit of that. The books of first and second Kings Although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focused on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections, which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. 
Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, zero for 20. And then in southern Judah, only eight out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones, Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Okay, so that kind of sets the stage a little bit. You can watch all of that video on our, our Facebook page or go to the Bible Project. They have those kinds of resources for every book of the Bible. It's a pretty phenomenal resource. Um, but essentially, like if you're following that, so Israel is split into two. You've got Israel in the north, and that, that's where these stories focus. And Ahab, like the, Israel, like zero for 20, right? Um, and Ahab, like he's, he's the worst of the worst. In fact, even before the story begins, right, the author tells us, verse 30, Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. You know, and the worst king of Israel goes to, yeah, right, Ahab. Just an honor to be nominated, I'm sure. Um, well, why? Why is he so bad? Well, that's, that's what the next eight, eight weeks are, are about, essentially. But, but here in, in the prologue, we get the, the highlights, or, or lowlights, I guess. Uh, first big strike against him is he marries Jezebel. Uh, which seems like, okay, big deal, like, who cares? Like, who, but she's a Canaanite, still, it's like, why does that matter? I mean, it seems like a politically savvy move. You marry in, you make alliances with other families, potential enemies, like, it makes sense what he's doing. The problem is, Jezebel, she doesn't like Yahweh, the God of Israel at all. In fact, she worships all kinds of other gods, especially Baal, and, and focuses there. They even practice, like, child sacrifice. I mean, all these kinds of, like, terrible, terrible things. And he marries her. They reject Yahweh, that's Israel's God, our God, completely. I mean, if there's anything that God demands, it's that we worship him only. That's number one of the Ten Commandments, right? And our God never condones human sacrifice. And so he marries her. Great start, Ahab. And as you expect, he begins to worship her gods as well. He gets drawn in to, to Baal, begins to, to, to sort of dabble in some of these, these strange old, old practices. And he, Ahab, the Jewish king, builds an altar to Baal, a temple to Baal in Israel. Like, if there's anything they're not supposed to do, this, this is it. This is not exactly kosher. And Baal, well, who is he? Like, what kind of God is, is he? Well, he, he is considered uh, the son of the high God, He's God of, of fertility. 
He's the storm god, the, the rain god, the, you know, the god of thunder, often, often represented as a bull. And so if you wanted to have crops and they grow, you would want Baal to bless them because uh, he would make it rain. He's making the soil fertile, right? If you wanted to, to have a child and, and grow your family, you would pray to Baal because that's part of what he does. He makes everything grow and multiply, so to speak. And uh, sorry, it's going to get nasty for a second, um, but context matters. So the rain that fell to the earth then uh, was considered to be his semen. Yeah. Um, which is important because their temples then uh, were, were places of, of prostitution, pedophilia, bestiality. Um, I mean, you, you name it, uh, incest, slavery, and abuse were these houses of, of worship. I mean, think about it. How else do you grab the attention of the God of fertility uh, but by arousing him enough to make it rain? Right? Um, And if that didn't work, they'd cut themselves or murder a child. Seriously. And people say all religions are the same. But why would an Israelite get drawn into this? Like, why would they have anything to do? Why would Ahab care? Like, who like, this is insane. We've got to put yourself in their, in their place a little bit. Because imagine if you're an Israelite, you're there, and you're relatively new in this geographical area, right? And there's, it's wilderness, desert. It's very arid. You're a farmer. The Canaanites have been there for a long time, way longer than you have. And you, you're watching them. You see how they continue to, to thrive and survive. And, and yes, you know you're supposed to worship Yahweh. But, I mean, here's the thing. You hear these rumors that there's a God out there who specializes in making it rain. And your family's hungry. What are you going to do? And so many give in. And the author then, he continues, still, still just in the prologue here, he continues by telling us that this guy... Hiel rebuilt Jericho. Again, that may not mean a whole lot to, to us. Let me give a little context here. Jericho was never supposed to be rebuilt. Um, it was a command of God, do not rebuild the city. And so he ignores the word of the Lord, uh, it says. And he does so, uh, the author tells us, at the cost of his oldest son for the foundation, at the cost of his youngest son uh, for the you know, finishing touches. And we don't know exactly what that means, and yet there's archaeological evidence around that time period for foundation sacrifices. Um, in which children were buried, often alive, um, in the foundation of buildings, you know, for luck. And this, this is important. Um, th- I mean, this is, this is what the narrator is getting at here with this, this Jericho, because it feels so random. Like, why is he talking about Jericho? Like, who cares? Jericho was the first city that God destroyed in ousting the Canaanites, and ousting these foreign gods who, who demand such terrible things. It, it was the, the first step in giving his people, this family, this new land, this sort of return to Eden, in a sense, the, the promised land. And the narrator wants us to see that Ahab, he's ruined it all. Like this, like any progress that God's people have made, it's all back into the toilet. They, all of it, like it's, it's done. And he doesn't want us to miss that, that Israel now, God's family in this story. Like they, they are the wicked nations they were supposed to destroy. They are the enemies now, the problem. So that's, that's the context of our story. It's great, right? The good old days. And so verse 33, 
Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. For God is rightfully angry at evil. I mean, for God to be good, like he has, he, he, he can't be okay with this. This is not what he created us humans for. This is not what he intended for this family, and he'd better be angry. And so here's, here's the first thing to remember. Um, this morning and through, through this series, you really just can't, you can't miss it in these stories. There is real evil in our world. And I know we forget that sometimes, 21st century suburbia and all. We're insulated from so much of it. But there is real evil in our world, and not just back then. I mean, there are places in the world that still continue to do these things, to still practice such things as child sacrifice. It happens. And, and not just, you know, in these foreign remote, remote places, but there are ways, maybe not in the same way, but ways that we do similar things. Violence, injustice, abuse, idolatry. And sometimes even those posing as God's people end up as the bad guys. That's how powerful sin is. I don't know, you might be thinking, well, we'd never do those things, though. I mean, come on. Yeah, I guess so, right? But we still worship the gods of sex, don't we, culturally? Yeah, but come on, we'd never sacrifice a child. I mean, I don't know, right? The altar of choice. Or how, many, how many families have been sacrificed for career, success, a little more money? It's not the same, I know. Yeah, but we'd never worship the rain god. Yeah, but what, what would you do if your family was hungry? Or, or what would you do to maintain just a little more job security, just get ahead a little bit further, to be a little bit safer, to have a little bit, a little bit more money? I mean, we hide it differently, yes. They're not the same things, and yet we are still a culture of idol worshipers, aren't we? I mean, our hearts are idle factories. We're constantly looking for anything, anywhere, any way to tell us, right, that life is worth living, to give me hope and satisfaction and, and joy and purpose. Like, we look everywhere, don't we? I do. And yet the psalmist tells us, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. We're going to see that in this story. There is real evil in our world. God doesn't leave us there. God doesn't leave us there. And so here comes Elijah. And Elijah really is the introduction of a new kind of character in the Bible. And we've had similar, like Moses, you know, but Moses, like his main role early on was to speak truth to Egypt, right? This foreign oppressor and to tell them what God has to to say to them. But now, like now, here's one who speaks to his own people, a prophet, not a, not a fortune teller, but one who speaks forth God's word. And so we meet him in chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And I got to tell you, I kind of love this guy already. Um, I mean, seriously, because he like, he just walks right up to Ahab. We don't, we don't know the context or like they had a meet and greet or like a little, I mean, we don't, we don't know what's happening. And yet, like all of a sudden, we're there with them, these two characters. And he stands in front of the most powerful and wicked person in his land and basically just kind of punches him right in the face, right? Unannounced. I mean, not, not quite, but sort of. Like what he says, 
I mean, the guts of this guy, and why? How does he, how does he have some, such courage? Well, it's because he, he knows the Lord, the God of Israel lives. And I stand before him, not you. You know, a little, a little tip when you read your Bibles, when you see Lord in the Old Testament, all caps like that, um, it's the, the Hebrew word Yahweh, uh, which is, that's God's proper name. Like, that's, that's his name that, he, that he's called throughout, all throughout the, the Old Testament. So, I mean, it's, it's clear, right, that he's saying, no, Yahweh is the God of Israel. He is the one who lives, not Baal. Like, Baal, Baal is nothing. And Elijah knows it and knows him. And he's not afraid, even though by doing this, he's, he's signing his own death sentence. So what? Yahweh lives. And it's not going to rain here unless I say it's going to rain. No rain for you. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Rain Nazi, right? You get it. Um, you see this? Now, now you probably like understand the significance of that, this rain thing, right? Like, this isn't like an arbitrary thing. Like, I'm just not going to let it rain for a little while. Like, this is, this is a clear attack on Baal. Baal, the storm god, the god who makes it rain? No, 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 no. Yahweh is the one who does that. And Ahab, as long as you trust in Baal, as long as you trust in anything but Yahweh, everything around you is going to shrivel up and die. You see, this, this story of the summer, it's, I mean, in some ways, it's, it is the story of Ahab versus Elijah ultimate cage fight. I mean, that's, that's what we're in store for. It's gonna, I mean, it's going to get wild at points. Um, but it's so much more than that. Like, it is, all, it is the story of Baal versus Yahweh. And, he, and even more, this, it's the story of our God versus anything that competes with him, right? For our time, attention, affection, anything that we run to to say, tell me that life matters. And only this God, our God, makes it rain. God uses his prophet to bring it about. To show God's wayward people a better way, he uses his prophet even to pursue Ahab, of all people. Like, God is still chasing him. And Elijah, he obeys. And that's the second thing. You just can't miss it in this story. It jumps out to me. Yes, there is real evil in our world, but God's people obey him anyway. He just can't miss it. Like, that's what we do. No matter the cost, we obey anyway. I mean, Elijah, he longs to see his people restored to God, even though at this point he has no reason to believe that he's going to live a second past this little three-second speech. And yet he is willing to speak truth no matter what. God's people stand up and stand out. It's what we do. We're not supposed to blend in. We're not supposed to fit in. Like, we're not supposed to run away when things get hard or ugly or broken. No, we run to the mess, not away from it. I mean, my, my first thought, right, in the face of, of evil, pain, suffering, is to run away, right? In fact, this, uh, this past weekend, uh, we, were, we were driving home on K-10. Uh, it was the night of one of those really big storms, storms last weekend. Um, and as we're just going along, like, all of a sudden, we get passed by this storm chaser vehicle. Like, it looked, it looked like that. Um, and we're just, you know, driving along, you know, and it goes by like, like maybe we shouldn't be going this direction, right? Because you could see the, the clouds forming and like we're looking around like what's, what is happening? And, and after I had that first like self-preserving, 
self-preserving thought. Uh, I thought about Elijah, actually. Because Elijah speeds to the storm, doesn't he? Right to the heart of it. Like, no matter what it costs, no matter how dangerous it is for him. I mean, or, or maybe, like, you think of the, the first responders in some terrible tragedy. Like, when every instinct, like, every human impulse says, run far, and they run near. I mean, listen, what if we, as a church, what if God's people today, what if we saw ourselves as first responders in our broken world? I mean, what if we ran to messy people? to love them? What if we ran to broken institutions to redeem them? What if we spoke against injustice and idolatry? And what if we lived our faith publicly? Like in such a way that the people around us just know that we're, we, we've chosen Jesus as our identity and as our hope and we build our lives on him. What if we lived that out loud to the, to the people around us and cared more about the God who lives and the comfort I want Ah, never mind, it's too much work. So Elijah, he just lays it all out there. Has this like huge, brave experience. I mean, just imagine like the adrenaline, like his heart pumping. He just had this like death encounter, basically. And then what? I mean, talk about a letdown. Verse verse two. Um, let's see. And the word of the Lord came to him. Basically, God says, dude, what are you thinking? Like, that's eight. Like, run, God says. That's what he says. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. That's it? Hide? Like, go camping and let the birds feed you for a while? I mean, that's... That's what God says in this moment? I mean, anybody else sort of picturing like a, a big raven, uh, you know, like mother bird style? Puke, no. Um, <laughs> that's what I think of. I don't think that's how it happened. Um, but like, this is, this is kind of weird, isn't it? And yet, unlike Hiel with Jericho, right, who the narrator said um, ignored the word of the Lord, Elijah obeys the word of the Lord. And frankly, even the even the ravens obey Yahweh. And if you think, like, this is all just, like, super weird and really, really hard to believe, um, I'm with you, okay? It is. It's, 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 it sounds crazy, doesn't it? The reality is you haven't seen anything yet as we get into the story, the stuff that we're going to witness together. And here, here, regardless of what you're thinking and you're picturing ravens, I know it's, it's hard to imagine, um, but here is what the author is trying to communicate in this, this prologue. And that's still all we're in, right? This is like the opening credits of the movie. Sorry it's taken so long. Um, that's, that's all we've done so far. We've got the next seven weeks after to, to walk through each of these, these stories. But in the opening credits already, right, the author wants us to see that there, there, there's a couple, a couple interesting things. Like Ahab, um, Ahab has everything. He's powerful. He's politically savvy. Um, you know, he's king, for crying out loud. He's rebuilding cities, uh, he's marrying important political alliances, he's reforming the nation's religion, and he's promising rain. Like, this is his economic policy, right? This is what he's going to do to bring it about. He's dependent on no one. He has everything, right? And, and so you should almost read it like we should all be, like, super impressed with Ahab right now. That's kind of what's, that's what, like, wow, look at this guy. God's not impressed. 
And then on the other side, you've got, you've got Elijah. He's, he gives this like three-second speech and then is forced into hiding. He's the ultimate underdog. He's like he's forced to sleep outside in the desert and dependent on birds to feed him. I mean, it's, it's almost over the top. And you, you think at this point, like there's no chance anything good is going to come out of this story. And I got to tell you, sometimes that's, that's just how God works sometimes, isn't it? Like in the face of such power, or brokenness, evil around us, and sometimes it just feels like, man, the, the little difference you and I can make, like why bother? I mean, can, can we really change anything? God, is this, is this it? And yet there, there sits Elijah, fed by the birds, provided for by God himself, which is the last thing I want to take with us, and really throughout this whole series. Yes, there's real evil, and yes, God's people obey anyway. And finally, no matter what, big or small, God is still with us. That's the whole point of this story. Um, it's a big part of what, what God does through the prophets. That God is still with us. That, that God, he's there with Elijah, even in the stream and the ravens. That God is with the remnant of, of faithful Israel, like working to, to make wrongs right again. And God's even there pursuing the wayward ones, running after Ahab of all people, giving him another chance. And if God is with us, we can trust him. No matter what he asks of us, we can do. No matter where he takes us or no matter what he requires, if our God is with us, then he can have all of us, right? And so here, here's the next step for today. And we'll get, we'll get more practical in the, weeks, in the weeks ahead, but just a simple, a simple way to begin. If God is with you, what is he asking you to do today? next, like to obey. Maybe it's to stand up and, and stand out. Maybe it's an area in which you just haven't been trusting him. Like you're trusting him like here, here, and here, but this, is, this part is off limits. Or maybe there's some sin that you, you, you know you just you have to turn from. If he is with you, even as he was with Elijah, do you believe that? What do you need to do next to be faithful to him? Or maybe you're not really sure he is with you. I'm guessing that describes a good number of us, right? The, the problems just seem too big um, and the solution just feels just out of reach or just completely untenable. Then what? Well, being here is a good start. Listening to his word and community. Um, obeying what you, what you do know to be true. And really, ultimately, we have to look to another, don't we? We can't just look at Elijah and, and Ahab and, and figure it all out. Because the reality is the story goes on much further than this. And God doesn't just send Elijah, these, this prophet or these prophets to his people. Eventually, God sends his son. God himself comes to, to get us. And I mean, Jesus' name, right? It's, his name is with us. Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus doesn't just comfort us in the wilderness, but he enters the wilderness on our behalf. He doesn't just feed us through the birds, so that'd be pretty cool, but he, he's the bread of life. And, and he doesn't just minister from afar, but he sends his spirit to dwell within us. I mean, did you know that in the New Testament there are some people who confuse Jesus for, like, for Elijah reincarnate, basically? Like they wonder if, if he's him, like coming back from the past. Um, 
Or, or, or like the, the transfiguration, there's a scene where Jesus shows his glory to his disciples. Um, and there's two special guests, like Moses and Elijah. I mean, Elijah's kind of a big deal, right? I mean, he, he's a massive figure here in this, this story that, that God is telling, and yet he is nothing compared to the one who would ultimately come for us. We have someone so much better, the one God who's greater than all other gods, whose name is both Yahweh and Yeshua with us. Baal can't even make it rain. Come on. Jesus pours out his blood for us on the cross to rescue us, freeing us from our idolatry, our slavery to self. Baal can't bring life. He can't, he can't fight against death. That's part of what he's supposed to do. But no, and yet Jesus walks out of the tomb alive, conquering it on our behalf. I mean, the clearest picture that no matter what, no matter what you face or no matter what other competing gods you look to, the clearest picture that our God is still with us. It's there on the cross in the empty tomb. And he is with you. So there sits Elijah. Oh man, I'd love to, I'd love to just like know what's going on in his head. He's there by the brook, like, eating from the birds. Like, he has to be wondering, like, God, what's next? Like, did any of it count? I mean, what, what is going to go on next in this, this story? Imagine it if it, was in, if it accomplished anything at all. And then one morning, I imagine Elijah, he wakes up, you know, has his little, his little bird breakfast, his back probably hurting from sleeping in the dirt for too long. And there he looks over at the, at the brook. And he sees, verse 7, after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to see that you, that you are better, greater, stronger, more beautiful, more satisfying than anything else that we could possibly run to to tell us that our lives are, are worth living. God, I pray that we, would, um, that we would see our sin and confess it. God, and that we would run to you as so much better than Baal or anything else that competes. God, God I pray as well that as we enter into this story, that we would not only see our sin, but also see how you call us um, to live a prophetic voice in a broken world, that we continue to speak truth from your words. God, help us to believe it. Help us to be people who don't run away, but run to, no matter what it costs us, to bring about your, your love, your redemption, your grace. But God, that's the work you're going to have to do in us. We trust you for it, we pray in Christ's name. And so as we think about that, as we keep that in mind, I, I want to just share our, our benediction, our good word for the road uh, from Isaiah 43, this reminder of our God who is with us in the midst of chaos and pain. So hear these words as a word of blessing as we as the gathered church leave to be the scattered church. So hear these words. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, who is with us. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.